0: Welcome to this Voice
1: activity. To access the entire activity, including supporting material, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash DWN. This activity is supported by an educational grant from AstraZeneca PLC. Welcome to this Voice on-demand activity based on a recent live event. This video-based activity comprises four presentations with a panel of experts. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. I'm P. James B. Dick from the Mayo Clinic. I welcome you this morning. Um, we're going to have an EBAC-accredited educational symposium. It's entitled, When ATTR amyloidosis strikes a nerve, best practice in timely suspicion, diagnosis and management of ATTR polyneuropathy. Um, I'd also like to welcome uh, my co-moderators for this panel today. Isabel Canseco from Portugal, Katrin Hahn uh, from Berlin, Germany. Uh, I hope this can be an interactive session. Many of you are ATTR amyloid experts And I have nothing to teach you, but I think this is a good interactive session, at least I hope it will be. So welcome everyone and thank you for coming. All right, so let us build a case for better care in ATTR. As most of you probably know, uh, transthyretin is made in the liver. Uh, It is a tetramere protein. Uh, and its dissociation into different monomers uh, is the event that often becomes amyloidogenic. Those monomers can f- make fibrils and can make amyloidosis. Uh, amyloidosis uh, can happen as a wild type, so TTR amyloidosis can happen as wild type, or it can happen as mutant or variant types. So and more than 130 different Pathogenic TTR mutations are known. Um, I don't think we really understand how common, how prevalent this is in the world. It's been estimated at about 50,000 patients, persons, 10,000 with polyneuropathy, 40,000 with cardiomyopathy, but. I think really we don't know how common this is. And I think many cases go undiagnosed, so it may even be more common than this. When looking at TTR polyneuropathy, this is a progressive and fatal disease. So we can grade it in different ways, including familial amyloid polyneuropathy stage 1 or PD 1 and 2, where you have uh, difficulty walking, uh, FAP stage two where you uh, need assistance or a cane or some other a device to walk or stage three where you're wheelchair bound. Um, and each of these uh, stages are progressive until death with death occurring on average at about 11 years after symptom onset. So this is another way of looking at this. Um, and you can see that um, this is a progressive disease, and once it begins, uh, it just continues to get worse. So, a real challenge for healthcare professionals is early recognition of ATTR. And what we're going to be discussing this morning, largely, is is how we can think about identifying these patients earlier uh, to prevent worsening and to prevent death. Um, And here are our our panel uh, uh, and hopefully we can have some good discussions about this. So you need a healthy level of suspicion. Early recognition and identification I think is very important. So what are the features of ATTR neuropathy? Uh, Patients have a lot of pain. It's burning, electrical shock, stabbing, contact allodinio where touch causes pain, sensory loss. Often early on, it's uh, especially small fibers, so patients don't feel temperature and pinprick well. Then they get progressive weakness, usually distally initially, but then spreading more proximally. There's often prominent autonomic symptoms. There can be sexual dysfunction gastrointestinal dysmotility, orthostasis, cachexia and weight loss. And then there's often coexisting carpal tunnel syndrome and coexisting lumbar spinal stenosis. And though all these symptoms are common, they present in different combinations in different people with different mutations. And I think that's an important thing to remember, that different mutations often will present with predominantly a neurologic presentation or predominantly a cardiological presentation. And we have moved away from calling it familial amyloid polyneuropathy or familial amyloid cardiomyopathy, uh, partly because of this. Uh, So the VAL30 MET mutation uh, in its early onset often is more of an autonomic neuropathy where the later onset it's often more of a mixed pattern. And so this underscores some of those different uh, features. So wild type often presents predominantly as a cardiac disorder, but can present as neuropathy, where VAL30MET usually presents as an autonomic neuropathy with a lot of GI manifestations and a sensory neuropathy, where the VAL30MET late onset uh, presents with more motor symptoms, less autonomic symptoms. And so the presentations are different uh, and it's um, also important that, to know that the early onset uh, often are very reproducible in their t- type of st- stereotype, stereotypical ways they present where it is not so true in the other uh, presentations. This is a multi-system disease. Uh, people, develop uh, symptoms from multiple different organ systems, including the eyes, the CNS, cardiovascular, uh, the GI tract, carpal tunnel, uh, retinopathy, peripheral neuropathy, autonomic. So again, having a multidisciplinary approach to this is important. So we are going to present some cases, and we'll continue on.
0: So it is my role to present the first case, and this is a man that was sent uh, to our, uh, that was referred to our center by a cardiologist. And uh, uh, this is uh, now, he is 72 years old. Um, He was born in Lisbon. There was no family history of neuropathy or uh, amyloidosis in the family. Uh, and the story starts at the age of 68, when the, uh, he started to complain of paresthesia, numbness of the feet, and at that time, there was a diagnosis of uh, lumbar stenosis and was submitted to a surgery, as it's uh, quite common at this age. Two years after, uh, he started with uh, some uh, orthostatic uh, uh, hypotension, uh, dizziness, uh, he had a syncope and a complete earth block was diagnosis. And it was necessary to implant a pacemaker. Everything is okay, but he developed cardiac failure. Symptoms of cardiac failure uh, one year after. At that time, he was uh, simultaneously uh, were numbness. Uh, He had some uh, weakness on the lower limbs, but the predominant uh, features of uh, the complaints are cardiac involvement. When I saw him, it was at that time, and he has um, lower limb weakness, atrophy. He has a a bilateral foot drop, Um, sensory involvement until the knees, and um, the reflexes in the lower limbs were uh, absent. So this is the man that was sent to to me uh, by a cardiologist, Uh, And afterward, we'll see uh, what was going on with this guy. Uh, So I can pass. um.
1: Oh, sorry. All right. So the second case is a 72-year-old man whom I saw. He had a five-year history of mild numbness, prickling and tingling in both of his feet to his mid-ankles. And then he had a change in his symptoms. About four months earlier, things became more progressive. Um, He stopped being able to run well, he stopped being able to play tennis, Uh, he felt fatigued uh, after he ran a mile, or after he'd walk a mile, he'd want to sit down, Um, he had numbness in his feet, sharp stabbing pains in his feet, he had no weakness. His past medical history was significant for elevated cholesterol, some hearing loss, Um, uh, he did not have diabetes he drank three drinks a day. He had a history of smoking. Um, had a long history of back pain radiating down a leg. Uh, no history of autonomic symptoms. No syncope. No bowel or bladder symptoms. No sexual abnormality. Uh, his neurologic examination showed no weakness. His reflexes were normal except for absent ankle reflexes. He had um, reduced sensation to touch, pinprick, and vibration in his toes. He underwent different electrophysiological testing. Nerve conductions in EMG showed a length dependent predominantly exonal peripheral neuropathy. Uh, autonomic testing, though, showed abnormality. Uh, he had postganglionic pseudomotor, severe cardiovagal, and moderate adnergic failure. Quantitative sensation showed decreased touch pressure sensation with normal vibration, cooling, and heat pain thresholds. The findings were consistent with the length dependent uh, sensory neuropathy. Thermoregulatory sweat testing showed anhydrosis over his hands and feet, uh, also consistent with length dependent neuropathy. MRI of the lumbar spine showed L3 4 spinal stenosis. All right, so I think there are different things that should make one think about amyloidosis, red flags, if you will, and in endemic areas and in non-endemic areas, some of them are the same, some of them are a little bit different. I would like to turn to Isabel, who works in an endemic area, to discuss this a little further for us.
0: In fact, we, um, regarding our endemic areas, the most common is the early onset symptoms of a small-fibre neuropathy uh, with uh, autonomic symptoms, the gastrointestinal uh, uh, in Involvement, it's very, it's very common at the very beginning of the disease. This is the most common, but in fact, even in Portugal, that we are considering an endemic area, and I'm from Lisbon, not from the, the original uh, uh, north part of Portugal where the, the, the patients are mostly on early onset age, uh, we have been having more and more late onset patients nowadays. Uh, the case that I showed to you, it's one of the examples. So we are uh, patients that have been diagnosed uh, at late stages with cardiac involvement, so this mixed phenotype that in the first beginning that was not uh, a talk in Portugal. I remember very well, and I started uh, in, uh, in this role, that someone uh, told me there is no cardiac involvement in our patients. And there it is. There are late onset with this mixed phenotype, and uh, even in endemic areas, we, ha- we have these uh, less common uh, patients that we talk in, as we
2: talk in Portugal. So let me just uh, comment on that uh, a little. So I'm also working in a non-endemic area, and the two patients uh, you have just outlined—they could be typical patients uh, also for our center. There is a variability. Um, Both of your patients had a spinal stenosis in in the history. This is something we see quite often and something that is uh, very often misdiagnosed as, as as the main reason. And the patients, both of them are older. They have concurring etiologies. Yours didn't have a diabetes, but very often patients do have a diabetes. But they are stable for quite some time. But then you see a drop, like uh, you have described in your patients, with the worsening over the four months. And this is something that should, should get you suspicious.
1: Thank you. So tools, the trade, best practices. There are different things that, and workups that one can do And think about when uh, diagnosing ATTR neuropathy. And I think the main message on this slide is that many patients are misdiagnosed and diagnosis takes a long time to come. So 30 to 74 percent of patients uh, don't have the right diagnosis originally. Um, And uh, they have over two wrong diagnoses on average before it's made, And there is a delay to making the diagnosis. So I think a challenge for us all is to be able to make the correct diagnosis. So what are some of those wrong diagnoses? In a length-dependent small fiber and autonomic neuropathy phenotype, uh, diabetic polyneuropathy, fibromyalgia, IG light chain amyloidosis, different digestive illnesses are often diagnosed. First, in a mixed large and small fiber neuropathy, things like CIDP, idiopathic axonal polyneuropathy, lumbar spinal stenosis, vasculitic neuropathy, toxic neuropathies, alcoholic neuropathies, paraprotonemic perineo- neuropathies are all things that um, have been diagnosed. And one of the things that we have become increasingly aware of is that many people with ATTR have been misdiagnosed as CIDP. And that's a little unusual to me, because CIDP tends to be a large fiber neuropathy with very few autonomic symptoms, where ATTR tends to be a small and large fiber neuropathy, often with a lot of pain, often with a lot of autonomic. So, usually one wouldn't think of the two of them the same. I have seen cases of ATTR that look a lot like CIDP. But I think one of the main reasons this occurs is that physicians want to help patients. And they, you, you have a patient with a rapidly progressive neuropathy, you want to do something to help them. And so thinking it might be CIDP and giving them trials of IVIG makes sense. All right, so optimal pathways in diagnosis uh, of ATTTR. So I think you have the clinical suspicion uh, and then sort of as we've just been talking about, the two main ways you're going to confirm this diagnosis is through DNA sequencing and bopsing of some sort of tissue. Um, And I think we'll talk a bit about it in a few minutes, but... um, There is some controversy if you always need to have pathological confirmation or not. Once you have identified amyloid in a tissue, it's nice to get typing of that either by immunohistochemistry or mass spec. At the Mayo Clinic where I am, we have essentially stopped doing immunohistochemistry and only do laser dissection and mass spec because it's much more specific. But I realize that many people don't have that uh, availability. All right, so we're going to continue on with case one.
0: Let's, uh, let's back to this story. So at the time I saw the patient, of course, the first thing I did was a neurophysiology test. So I did the electromyography with nerve conduction studies. And at that time, the patient had already a severe sensory motor axonal neuropathy with a length-dependent uh, pattern. The sympathetic skin response was absent on the foot, uh, and the quantitative sensory testing disclosed insensitivity to pain and, uh, and cooling and uh, quite increased threshold on, uh, um, on vibration. Pseudoscone disclosed also anidrosis uh, on, uh, on the feet. Simultaneously, the cardiac evaluation, and the patient was sent to me by a cardiologist, as I said before. This patient had... Uh, uh, Quite elevated anti-proBNP, a echocardiogram with increased septal uh, thickness, but with the preserved uh, ejection fraction, and with the sparkling pattern on the on the Heco, which is uh, something that we are used to see on the amyloidosis. At that time, the cardiologist just performed the DPD scintigraphy and it was uh, disclosed a a grade 3 of amyloid um, uh, deposition. So in summary, we have a patient with uh, sensory motor axonal neuropathy that is already in stage 2 with the PND3A. Matt had a spinal stenosis at the very beginning of uh, his picture uh, with the bilateral carpal tunnel syndrome that we I forgot that we see uh, uh, on electromyography, with the cardiac involvement that disclosed the TTR amyloid deposition because the DPD scintigraphy was positive, and with autonomic involvement at the same time. So this is the whole picture of a mixed phenotype. But at that, uh, that, that time, we didn't have. Uh, any kind of confirmation of the
1: diagnosis. So you did not biopsy this patient.
0: I did not. I did not. The, the patient came to me with a DPD scintigraphy positive, right. and it means that we have TTR deposition on the heart. Uh, if I have another confirmation for a, a mutation, I will. I don't need a biopsy on this patient to confirm amyloidosis on TTR amyloid. Yeah.
1: So I, I think most of you are probably are aware of this, but because of Um, the high specificity of scintigraphy, the cardiologists essentially do not feel they need to do biopsy to make the diagnosis anymore. And so when there's cardiac involvement, this is an alternative. Um, When it comes to nerve and uh, predominant neurologic presentations, I still think uh, some sort of tissue confirmation is important. Katrine, do you have anything to add to that?
2: No, I I certainly agree. And like we said in the beginning, uh, patients in non-endemic areas, they are older, very often have concomitant uh, diseases that might also be the underlying reason for the neuropathy. So sometimes you are in trouble um, to ask yourself, is the neuropathy really related to ATDRV or not? And then the biopsy is certainly helpful.
1: So
0: the confirmation came after when he came to me. The first thing I did was, uh, a full sequence of the TTR gene, of course, and it was disclosed a V30-mic mutation. So we have the confirmation of ATTR V30-mic mutation, late onset patient with a mixed phenotype.
1: All right, so going on with case two. I'm at the Mayo Clinic and I'm the head of the peripheral nerve laboratory, so of course I did a nerve biopsy on my patient. Uh, this shows uh, the T's nerve fibers, you can see different strands showing exonal degeneration. These are the paraffin sections, longitudinal, and you can see an amorphous material uh, shown in all the different uh, preparations. The methyl violet shows that, that violet type of color for the amyloid deposition. The Congo red shows philic uh, material And then you can see the apple green birefringence under polarized light. Uh, An echocardiogram showed an infiltrative cardiomyopathy. I did a nerve biopsy and a fat aspirate simultaneously. People come to the Mayo Clinic to get an evaluation and they don't live there, so we tried to do things efficiently and both of them came back positive. Genetic testing showed a Val 30 MET mutation and so he had attr Caused by VAL30MET mutation without a family history. So, takeaway messages what have we learned? I think it's important when thinking about patients uh, with ATTR to try to make a timely diagnosis. And this disease can present with autonomic sensory motor symptoms. Uh, So it's really helpful to have testing of those different systems. So autonomic uh, testing, sweat test, quantitative sensation test, nerve conduction, EMG, and other tests. Recognition of red flags is helpful in thinking about the diagnosis. So thinking about carpal tunnel syndrome, lumbar spinal stenosis, cardiomyopathy, weight loss, autonomic symptoms, and people with a neuropathy, will be helpful in trying to identify these patients. It's important to remember that not all progressive neuropathies uh, are uh, CIDP, and one progressive neuropathy is ATTR. And part of the reason I wanted to present case two to you is to show you just how nondescript some of these neuropathies are. This neuropathy, it was a guy with a little bit of numb feet over years, and it really was the run of the mill neuropathy. Um, It got a little worse the four months before that, but there really wasn't a lot about that person's neuropathy that made me think about ATTR. And I think it really raises a question of when should we do genetic testing in patients with neuropathy? and really begs the question is, should we do it in all patients? And I'll turn to my panel co-people and ask them what they think about that.
2: Yeah, I can start. Um, it's obviously a, a multi-layer uh, discussion. So on one point, I probably everybody would agree it wouldn't make sense uh, for a rare disease to do a testing in every patient because the Uh, diagnostic efficiency would be quite low, but on the other side, we we should not overlook those patients. Um, I certainly think that we should look for TTR with genetic testing in every patient who shows a progressive disease. Also in CIDP patients who do not respond to treatment adequately, we do it relatively early. But I do believe that in time when genetic testing becomes more cost-efficient uh, and we do genetic testing on a more whole scale, that it will be included very early at the time of diagnosis.
0: Yeah, there are some uh, recent uh, uh, works done on this on this field, uh, trying to look at idiopathic neuropathy. It's uh, worse uh, doing a, a TTR uh, sequencing at, at all patients. Some of the works showing that there is... No very high percentage of patients with a TTR mutation. Others defend that they will, uh, should be done. I think we have to learn something more about this in the, in the, in the future. Uh, but I will say that uh, I do not agree that we were doing genetic tests in whole patients with a neuropathy. We have a very defined neuropathy pat- pattern. So this one is quite. Uh, the progressive uh, type of neuropathy, the length-dependent neuropathy, looking very carefully to autonomic symptoms or signs, not only symptoms like your case. You do not have any kind of autonomic uh, involvement like in symptomatic, but you disclosed uh, small fiber involvement in this patient. So maybe not in whole, but we have to select them.
1: Yeah, and I think the tension here from my perspective too is we're pushing for early diagnosis, but really early in the disease course, these things get are quite nonspecific sometimes. Yeah. And then with progression, they become more specific. So it's a bit of a tension.
2: Just to add up on this, I think patients are also coming over a different discipline. Let's just take the cardiologist, for instance. Um, They have a focus on TTR uh, amyloidosis, also with the wild-type TTR amyloidosis. So we do see a lot of patients uh, with with this disease who have, of course, no underlying uh, genetic reason, but we do test them all.
1: Good. Thank you. All right. Modern mechanisms for management.
0: So, if we look to the the pathogenic cascade of the disease, it's very easy to to have an idea what we should do to stop the disease progression. Leaving the liver transplant for another discussion, Uh, we can uh, uh, silence the TTR gene expression and nowadays, we have uh, pharmacological treatments for uh, trying to do this or doing this, with, like the small interference RNA that we have, patisiran and vutrisiran, uh, The oligonucleotide antisense, like um, inotersin and aplotersin, or in the near future, the CRISP uh, 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 strategy. We can also go a little bit further in the cascade and try to stabilize the tetramer. And one of the, uh, the, first, and the, the first approval of therapeutic treatment for, for the disease was Tafamidis. This, was, this is a stabilizer, and nowadays we have a, quite experience on the, the therapy, and we really know what patients we should treat or not to treat. And other uh, stabilizers that are not uh, uh, still approved, like AG10, the Flunizal, or even the green tea. Going a little bit further away, we should think that we already have amyloid deposits on the tissue, so we should remove them uh, as an additional step on the, uh, on treatment. So uh, uh, there are uh, some uh, studies with DoxyTutka, and uh, uh, in the future we hope that monoclonal antibodies will give uh, us uh, a clue for this removal of the amyloid uh, on the tissues. I go back to you again.
1: Thank you. Do either of you still do liver transplantations?
0: In Portugal, we still do. But it depends on the patients, Uh, less and less in the last years, of course. Very few patients have been submitted to liver transplant. But it depends on the patient also. Don't forget that there are several patients in Portugal that have have a very positive experience with liver transplant in their families. And some of those uh, really want a definitive, like, I want a definitive solution for this. This is not a solution, and we try to explain to the patient. But uh, this, we have some patients that still want to be le- submitted to liver transplant. We usually discuss the therapeutics with the, with the patients and put the pros and the cons on the top of the table and try to explain. But there are very few nowadays.
2: Yeah, I think it's important what you say. And um, we have, do have good data um, for the, the survival rate with uh, liver transplant in patients with early onset but in Germany, as in a non endemic area, it, uh, it's not important anymore.
1: Yeah. Uh, we have, it's been years since I think we've done a liver transplant at the Mayo Clinic. We used to do it frequent, but not so much anymore.
2: So, this slide just gives you an overview of what we do have and, and what is in the pipeline, at least for, for ATRV. So, so far, there are four treatments approved to t- uh, treat patients with uh, polyneuropathy. So like Isabel said, tafamidis was the first one approved in uh, 2011. It's a medication that is only given, and it is approved for patients with stage 1 polyneuropathy. This is important. And I think it's also important that this medication is also approved for patients with an isolated cardiomyopathy, no matter if this has a genetic underlying reason or not. So you can also use it in, in wild type. And then we have three medications that are approved for patients with stage 1 and stage 2 polyneuropathy. So patisiran and vutuceran, they use the silencing RNA uh, um, mechanism. Patisseran has to be given uh, every three weeks uh, intravenously with a pre-medication. Um, and the data are f- uh, from the Apollo-Ace uh, study. And sometimes you do observe infusion-related reactions Um, Vutrisavate is a GALNAG medication. It has to be given only once every three months. There are no severe side effects and it has been also approved for stage one and uh, stage two polyneuropathy. Anotazin uses the antisense strategy. It's given once a week, subcutaneously, you have to monitor the platelets if you use this uh, medications because platelets may drop and may cause severe uh, uh, bleeding. And you have to be aware that some patients do develop chlomerulonephritis. So the other medications or treatments you see there, they are not approved so far. So Eplontazine, we just have seen, it's also presented on this conference, the 66-week uh, data um, it's applied subcutaneously once a month. And the CRISPR-Cas9 that Isabel uh, just mentioned, um, there was a Phase one trial published uh, last year, so we do have a proof of concept, um, but the clinical data are missing.
1: So going back to our cases.
2: In fact, when the patient
0: uh, was sent to me, even before the, me- the molecular diagnosis, he was treated with Tafamidi 61 milligrams, because he was treated by a cardiologist. And the first diagnosis was a cardiac amyloidosis uh, related to TTR. And in Portugal, we are able to do uh, Tafamidis 61 milligrams. I've been following this patient for one year and a half after she started the treatment. And uh, the neuropathy is quite stable. The cardiac involvement, the cardiac symptoms are stable or even better. So I decided not to switch this uh, therapeutic to my patient although he has uh, stage two polyneuropathy.
1: All right, case two. <clears throat> so he had VAL30 MET mutation. He had positive uh, nerve biopsy for amyloidosis. He was enrolled in the inoturcin uh, study. Uh, he uh, actually received inotersin and not placebo. He completed the study, and he was transitioned to the extension study with active drug During this time, his symptoms did not progress and his neuropathy impairment score remained stable. And I continue to follow him to this day and his neuropathy has stayed very stable uh, for now many years.
2: So, James, let me just uh, interrupt you shortly. There's one question just uh, came in that may fit. So what criteria do you choose to decide between the different uh, medications that use the uh, genetic influence?
1: Yeah, no, I I think these are important questions about how you choose which drug to use. And one thing I would say is that I don't think you can make direct comparisons between the different drugs because the drugs were, they had different endpoints, different criteria, different lengths of treatment. And so I don't think it is um, fair to make a direct comparison. I do think thinking about side effects is important. Um, you know the platelet issue with inotuzumab is important. There is definitely an advantage of the subcutaneous with inotuzumab versus patisiran, but the newer agents are all going to be subcutaneous. How about the two of you? How do you make decisions?
0: Uh, we make we make decisions based uh, on the um, side effects, the proximity of the patients to the hospital. If because if we decided to to do patisiran. It's an implication to coming to the hospital every three weeks, and if the patient is young and active worker, sometimes it's a problem. Um, But in Portugal, we used to start with the families in the very early beginning of the disease, since we are following, it's, it's different from other countries, but we are following several asymptomatic carriers. And I, in my, my center, we are used to do all the neurophysiological tests with small fibers, and the first uh, sign of disease, we start treatment. Mm-hmm. And we believe that in young patients, mainly in females, that respond much better to Tafamidis, curiously, uh, and that's very early beginning on with sensory symptoms, we started with Tafamidis. Mm-hmm. If the patient has already some motor involvement, even though only a slight foot drop or something, we decided to go on the uh, gene silencers because mm. we know that tafamides at that time does not uh, have a very good uh, response. And the decision was, in Portugal we are not allowed to, do, uh, to prescribe inotersen on naive patients in the, uh, stage one, sure. only in stage two, so it's easy yep. to choose. Okay? But it depends on the countries, it depends on
1: that, that it's approved for. How about in Germany?
2: Yeah, we do it uh, quite similar to what you and just Isabella said. So we wouldn't treat uh, patients with tefalomides if they have a large fibromyalgia involvement and uh, show already weakness because we do know that uh, they show progression. Um, But everything else is you decide between the side effects, uh, the way of application, you discuss it with the patient.
1: The other thing in America, some insurance companies will pay for one agent and not for another agent, so some of these decisions aren't necessarily made by us either. All right, so takeaway messages. Treatment of ATTR neuropathy is a rapidly changing landscape, and it will continue to evolve. Mechanisms include gene silencing or silencing of gene expression, stabilization of the tetramer, disruption of amyloid fibrils, Um, As I already mentioned, one should not make direct comparisons of the different agents. The studies were conducted in different populations for different lengths of time using different endpoints. Um, At this time, there are approved medicines that slow the progression of ATTR polyneuropathy, including tefamidus, patisirin, inotersin, vutisirin, and there are others in the pipeline. So we want to emphasize the multidisciplinary care that is needed for ATTR patients. And I've already shown you this slide. And again, I'm trying to emphasize here that this is a multi-organ disease and so you need experts from different fields working together to care for these patients. Can I interrupt you? you? You should interrupt me. This is a, a okay. free-flowing discussion, so thank you very much.
0: You, uh, we are always saying that is a multidisciplinary. We need a multidisciplinary approach, and I think we should emphasize that this uh, multidisciplinary approach uh, is uh, it's challenge to treat the patients in the symptomatic way. It's very difficult and we cannot, we are always saying and and talking about modifying treatments for the disease, but it's quite important the symptomatic treatment of these patients. Do not forget this. And this multidisciplinary approach, uh, it's benefits to to the patient because everyone from their field will treat symptomatic patients better than others. Uh, but sometimes it's, it's hard. It's the cardiac uh, symptoms are very hard. The patients are, have, uh, are hypertensive, but uh, they have orthostatic hypotension. They have uh, uh, lower lymphedema. We have to do uh, give them uh, diuretics, but they fall. They have a syncope because they have orthostatic hypertension. Uh, even the neuropathic pain, to deal with neuropathic pain, and we are in this, uh, the field of n- neuropathic uh, pain, uh, Deal with neuropathic pain in this patient is sometimes very, very difficult. Yeah. Uh, so I think the multidisciplinary approach, not only to uh, manage the, the, the disease, but the symptomatic treatment for this patient is something that we have to uh, start to talk a little bit more. It's okay. my opinion.
1: Thank you.
2: I also think this uh, can't be emphasized uh, en- enough. Those patients are really, really complex. And if you just think about the cardiac manifestations, 50% of the patients, they do develop atrial fibrillation, for instance, and then the neurologist uh, comes in, in place. Uh, they develop uh, strokes and so on. So they can be uh, really, really complex Uh, And if you ask the patients, I mean, it's one thing that we say the studies, uh, they have to improve the symptoms and they seem to be really effective and it's good that we have them. But you also also have to ask yourself the questions, what is the patient's bothering most? Um, And not all the symptoms respond quite equally to the treatment, especially pain and gastrointestinal symptoms. But these are two things that really decrease the life quality uh, of the patient, especially the gastrointestinal symptoms. So that just uh, shows you that there is an urgent need to have a gastroenterologist, for instance, to have somebody who advises the patients in nutrition because they lose a lot of, of, of weight. And this is something that is often not be done very well by, by a neurologist. And the other point I want to emphasize, so most of the data we have so far um, there on neurological data, but like uh, James and Isabel have shown in, in, in their example, patients do have the cardiac involvement, but we only have one uh, medication that is approved for cardiac involvement uh, so far. And I mean, the other studies are running and we will get the data uh, soon. Um, but sometimes in an interdisciplinary discussion, the cardiologist says, okay, the, the cardiac involvement. Uh, it's getting worse and worse on and, and, and what do we do. And so it's, it's a strong or a hard discussion, a discussion.
1: Yeah, no, it, it is a problem. And Sometimes the cardiologist will come to you and say, yeah, please treat this person for their neuropathy. And uh, there isn't much neuropathy there, but they're wanting to treat them with the other agents so that this is an issue that I have to deal with and I assume you also have to deal with.
0: Yeah, we are not allowed. In Portugal, we are not allowed to do combined therapy. There is a question around, for sure, in, their, in your minds. We are not allowed. Uh, so if we treat the patients for cardiac uh, uh, part with Tafamidin 61, we are not allowed to treat uh, neuropathy. But in fact, until now, we don't know. We really don't know what is the role of Tafamidin 61 on neuropathy. I hope I can give you some answers in some months, but, but uh, we don't know.
2: But we do have... Uh mainly neurologists and auditorium, and they do ask neurological questions, so let me just uh, give them uh, to you. So maybe, James, for you, can you please talk a little about the EMG aspect?
1: Yeah, so what is the role of EMG uh, in uh, HATTR? So the EMGs, nerve conduction EMGs, usually show a link-dependent peripheral neuropathy, predominantly axonal, uh, occasionally, there are some demyelinating features, and it can look a bit like CIDP. Occasionally, it can be a polyradiculoneuropathy neuropathy with proximal and distal involvement. But in general, these are length-dependent neuropathies with often superimposed carpal tunnel syndrome. So you'll often find the median neuropathy at the wrist on the EMG. The other thing I would say about EMG, and, and this is maybe a bit of a Mayo Clinic perspective. But we use EMGs to monitor progression of neuropathy. So having repeating an EMG once a year or something like that and seeing how has it changed over time is a way of looking at exonal loss and, or the opposite of stability uh, with these drugs. And it's one way that we uh, monitor our patients.
2: So how often do you repeat the EMG when you monitor the
1: patient? Yeah, often probably once a year, something like that. I mean, you know, as you all know, EMGs are unpleasant uh, examinations to go through. Uh, So not that often. But I I do think it's useful to look at the progression of neuropathy.
0: Yeah, we are
1: used to do it also
0: every year in treated patients and every year in asymptomatic carriers and even if we are following our uh, symptomatic errors and we, we have a, a baseline, and once we saw a decrease on 50% of the amplitudes of a sensory or motor, it's a red flag for us that even though the patient doesn't have symptoms, something is going on.
1: Yeah.
2: So there's one more question concerning the EMG. Do you use an EMG grading system?
1: Sir, do I use an EMG?
2: Grading system.
1: Grading system. Um, yeah. So I don't. I, I certainly think that one issue that I grew up with, with my father also being a peripheral nerve doctor, is one thing that he would get annoyed about is people would come in with absent A H responses, the Tibial and E D B responses from the foot and these are small muscles, and they would say, this is a severe neuropathy, and the patients wouldn't have any weakness at all. And so he didn't like that, and he would tell the patients, you have a mild neuropathy? And they'd say, well, this EMG says I have a severe neuropathy. So I have a bit of a predilection not to overly grade EMGs that way. But one thing I do, which is similar, is we use what we call a summated CMAP, or a summated snap. And so we add all the different motor responses together. We do the same ones over again, add all the sensory responses together, and it's, it's a way of tracking how they uh, change over time. So takeaway messages. Uh, P N is a multi of disease, and so patients should have a multidisciplinary approach. Having providers with special knowledge of ATTR polyneuropathy helps patients. Our specialties include cardiology, hematology, gastroenterology, nephrology, ophthalmology, orthopedics, and others. So we are going to end with uh, any of your uh, questions.
2: Um, I think one that is uh, important is how do we deal uh, with patients who present with just uh, isolated autonomic neuropathy?
0: With autonomic neuropathy alone? Um uh, once we diagnose the disease, we started, I, I used to treat it as a neuropathy by itself. Uh, it's very difficult. To, and, and here, the challenge is to treat symptomatic autonomic uh, symptoms. Uh, and we do it uh, with the gastrointestinal, with anti-diarrheas, diuretics. Uh, I used to deal with uh, uh, orthostatic hypotension with midodrine or either even... A worst case, the pseudo um, but uh, I start treatment. I start to modify therapeutic treatment, even if I have a, a patient only with autonomic involvement. But at that, at the, in these cases, I used to do a, a tissue biopsy to confirm amyloid deposits because sometimes it's difficult. We cannot forget we are in endemic area with a very very uh, heavy family. Uh, um, uh, weight in, the, in the, the back of the, the patient so sometimes, nowadays we have the symptomatic carriers trying to be sick because they want to be treated
1: yeah.
0: and uh, they came to us and say look I'm uh, with sexual dysfunction now I started with some diarrheas and some pain and we are doing everything in the patients every small fiber uh, neurophysiology uh, everything. everything is normal So we have to go to a tissue biopsy, although we know that it can be negative. But uh, if it's positive, give us the clue that the disease process is coming. And uh, for me, they are sick, and I start treatment. Uh, If it's negative, maybe it's a false negative, but for the patient, it's like, okay, I I have a, a negative biopsy. In the next visit, they are, are you Okay. Everything was a gun. Sometimes it happens, so it's difficult.
1: No, I think that is a real issue. The symptomatic um, carriers that they often come in with some tingling and prickling in their feet, and their exams are normal, and you know, it's it's difficult to know. And I think, you know, hopefully in the future we will get data about using these agents to prevent onset, but we don't have such data now. So, you know, they are just a difficult group to know what to do with.
2: Maybe biomarkers like
1: neurofilaments. Maybe. Maybe.
2: So one more question concerning treatment. Um, How do you deal with patients who show progression after liver transplantation? That's one question from the auditorium. With progression?
0: In Portugal, we are not uh, allowed to do any uh, kind of uh, other therapeutic uh, modifying uh, on the liver transplanted patients. Nowadays, we have several patients with central nervous system involvement, uh, ocular involvement after liver transplant, and uh, with amyloid spells, which are quite significant. So it's another part of the disease, but it's quite important right now. Uh, yeah, Unfortunately, in Portugal, we are not allowed to treat uh, uh, liver transplant patients, even though if they have a progression in neuropathy or other kind of uh, involvement. But it doesn't make sense to treat a, a patient submitted to liver transplant that they have or thing to treat with another uh, um, drug if we only have central nervous system involvement because we are not crossing... Blood-brain yeah. barrier. So, if they have a progression of neuropathy, it makes sense. If not,
1: what are we doing? Yeah. I have several patients who have had liver transplantations who have progression of their neuropathy, and then then have gone on to gene silencers. I don't have the same uh, restrictions for that. And as many of you probably know, even after liver transplantation, it is not uncommon for the neuropathy to progress and the body can take wild-type TTR and lay it down on existing amyloid deposits. And so neuropathy frequently will get worse after liver transplantation.
2: So another question that we may use as the last complex before we close our session is the question, how do we define treatment response, which I think is quite a difficult question, Um, Because, like I said, patients do have uh, many different symptoms depending on the organ system that is involved, and not all the symptoms uh, do respond equally um, uh, to the treatment. So you might be successful with the large fiber involvement, but you might not be successful with the pain or with the gastrointestinal involvement. So is it a treatment non responder Then So this is something we are arguing quite often, especially when you discuss it in an interdisciplinary board, uh, and all the different disciplines comment on their own organ system. Yeah. How do you deal with that
0: it 's our task, but uh, we have uh, to look to several uh, parts of the of the disease we have to uh, we, are, we are used to to follow our patient every six months uh, with the NIA's, uh, um, with the NEET's uh, score, uh, clinical, the symptomatic uh, uh, questionnaire, and once a year with neurophysiology because they don't like it. Um, and we used to, to look to the progression not only with neuropathy, and we, we are based mainly on knees and uh, electromyography, uh, but if you ask me, when I will decide to switch treatment and I see a progression on a a patient, it's different from patient to patient. Uh, Usually, if I have a patient on tafamidis for some years and I see a large fiber involvement with uh, uh, weakness, uh, I decided to switch therapy. For me, it's very easy.
1: I, I think this is an important question, too, because amyloid depositions don't go away at least not at this point. So treatment success really at the beginning is stopping progression of the disease. You know, there is some evidence that there's some improvement with some of the agents, but, but mostly what we're really trying at this stage is to stop progression of the disease. And if you get improvements, hallelujah, that's a great thing. But for most people, they don't really get a lot of improvement. So again, that underscores why identifying these patients early in the disease course and try to prevent them getting severe disease is so important. And I I do think that is something that's very important. Dr. John Kincaid asked me before the session, he says, I have a question for you. Why do people with the same mutation Some of them get an autonomic neuropathy, some of them get a motor neuropathy, and some of them get a cardiomyopathy. So I will put that question to the two of you since Dr. Kincaid wants to know the answer to that.
2: I do not want to disappoint the the colleague, but the the, the, the honest answer is we do not know yet at all.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I don't have the answer for that question either. So I want to thank my co-members of the panel, thank you very much. I think it was a fun discussion. I want to thank you all for getting out of your bed so early in the morning and rolling down to have a conversation with us. And I do think uh, this is a disease that was a fatal disease that we've made a real difference in. So that is great. And I uh, thank you all for coming. Thank you. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.